Health Decoded, a student-run podcast hosted with the Yale School of Public Health, also known as YSPH. Each month, one of our awesome YSPH students, like us, will focus on a relevant public health issue and interview experts in the field to help us all understand the issue a bit better. My name is Panu Padiera. And my name is Suhasini Ravi. And today, we're hoping to decode the confusion around the phrase Medicare for All. Now, before we talk about Medicare for All, we should mention what Medicare is. Suhasini, can you give us a quick recap? Sure. Medicare is a public plan that provides basic health coverage to those age 65 and older. A buzzword we've been hearing a lot is single-payer system, which means that the government would pay for all or almost all health care expenses. So let me see if I understand this. Medicare is a single-payer system, and single-payer in this case is the government? Medicare in its most basic form is a single-payer, but payment responsibilities for parts of Medicare are shared with private insurance companies. One of our guests will provide more information on this. So Medicare is a program for those 65 and older, but this past year we've seen the topic of Medicare for All come up pretty frequently when referring to universal health care. So in this country, since the fateful 2016 election, we've heard many conversations about repealing the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. But actually, we could call it Trump Care today because of all the changes made to it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, in these conversations on Obamacare, though, we focused on increasing access to health care, especially the idea of universal health care. Now, universal health care can take on many forms, right? We've seen those examples in UK, Canada, Netherlands. Uh, but apparently, even the people who agree that everyone should have access to health care don't agree on what the best way to go about it is. So one of these ideas to make universal health care a reality is Medicare for all. But even this topic has different sides. To help us understand the issue better, we'll be speaking with Dr. Mark Schlesinger, Professor of Health Policy at the Yale School of Public Health, and Dr. Bradley Richards, Assistant Professor of General Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. Could you provide our audience with a brief introduction of yourself? So I've been at Yale for about 28 years now, not that anyone's counting. Uh, I've been teaching health policy that uh, all that time, and I am now Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management. Could you provide the audience with uh, some background info on how Medicare is structured like currently? So Medicare was a federal program enacted in 1965. It originally was just for the elderly and paid for their hospital care and their doctor's bills. Uh, in 1972, it got extended to include the disabled. It has Part A, which is hospital care, and Part B, which is doctor care. Okay. And literally what they did was take private insurance plans for hospital coverage and doctor coverage, and they just stapled them together. And that's <laughs> how you got Part A and Part B. When the private plans are first introduced as an option, they are called Medicare Part C. That's what later becomes the Advantage plans. Medicare Part D was the coverage enacted in 2003, which is prescription drug coverage, which, just to confuse everyone, is sometimes delivered through Medicare Part C plans, but is really Part D coverage. <laughs> they made this really simple to understand, really didn't they? Really simple. <laughs> awesome. So now that we have some background on what Medicare is, could you describe what Medicare for All is? Is it a cohesive movement, or are there different factions in it? 
So Medicare for all is actually a term that goes back about 30 and 40 years, and it's always had two different flavors to it. Flavor one is the, oh, if you don't like your private insurance plan, you can buy into Medicare if you're willing to pay an actuarially fair premium. That is a premium adjusted for your age. But they didn't quite get that one last vote, so it, the public option disappeared. And so that version of Medicare for all, the optional version, kind of slipped in the wayside. Okay. Now, the second flavor, which again has been around equally long, was a different way of thinking about Medicare for all, which would literally be for everyone. So replacing private insurance, replacing Medicaid, putting everyone together in the same overall program. Now, as we just said, being in the same program doesn't mean you all have the same actual insurer because you could go into Medicare, you could take a Medicare Advantage plan, that Part C plan, and still have private insurance. Or when you get your drug coverage, you could get your drug coverage through a private insurance plan. But everyone would have Medicare as the kind of umbrella program that would finance the whole delivery system. Do you think any of them will be more likely to be implemented in our current political climate? Well, in the current political climate, none of them. Are <laughs> Very <important>. little. <laughs> but we know in 2010, which was not that long ago and not in a galaxy far, far away, but in, in the United States, we could actually imagine having again, we literally came within one vote in the Senate. Literally, the senator from Connecticut, Joe Lieberman, voted against it. But if there was been one more vote, we would have Medicare for all as a public option. So obviously, that's an easier sell because it doesn't tell people they have to give up insurance. It basically says, if you want to give up your private insurance, this is a place for you to go. Medicare for all in the Bernie Sanders sense is a harder sell because not everyone is quite ready to give up their private insurance. And frankly, because Medicare in its conventional form is not all that great in insurance coverage for people with low incomes. Mm -hmm. And so Medicaid is actually a better coverage plan. So were you to have Medicare for all, you'd have to figure out how to blend together Medicare and Medicaid into kind of a hybrid that would work better for low-income people. Um, and then you mentioned, again, of these two different camps or two different sides that have Medicare for all, the Bernie Sanders version that wants everyone to be in it versus the public option that wants Medicare to be an option. Do you think these two sides could come together on this issue? Because they would be stronger, you know, working on something like this together. Yes, Medicare for all for all, right? <laughs> exactly. double, double bonus. <laughs> uh, and yes, and it is attention that currently exists. So you could imagine a kind of hybrid that would say, let's start with Medicare for all as an option. Let's let people start to enroll in the program. Uh, some versions of Medicare for all as an option would let employers kind of take all their workers and enroll them en masse into the program. So let's say you let it grow in that kind of incremental way. And then when you hit some threshold, you got 70%, 75%, 80% of the public in Medicare for all, mm -hmm. then you say, okay, now it's for everyone. And at that point, there aren't that many people whose lives are going to be disrupted. So there are people um, within the general public that have this idea that the government, the federal government, wouldn't be able to have the capacity to handle a program such as Medicare for all. I mean, we see failures in past government um, 
led programs and it really leads to a lack of public faith in the government to actually yeah. execute this yeah. efficiently. Um, do you do you think that the federal government would have the capacity for something like this if it reached you know seventy five percent of American um, population? The good thing about Medicare is that it's very scalable in the sense that you basically just do the same thing for everyone. If you're in conventional Medicare, you're providing the same coverage nationwide. So scalability isn't really the issue. What's the issue here is that precisely as you suggested, some people are just really suspicious of anything involving government. So if you look at public opinion polls and you have people imagine what would it be like if government would run health insurance? And then you have them say, well, what would that do to quality? About a third of them will say, oh, quality will go down. It would be horrible. If you ask, well, what would that do to access to care? A third of the people will say, oh, that would make access to care a lot harder than it is now. That would be horrible. If you say, well, what would that do for like choice of doctors or choice of hospitals? a third of the public, the same third in all these different cases, will say it'll be horrible for choice. So you have basically a third of the public that are the deep skeptics, the deep disbelievers. Conversely, you have two-thirds of the people who'd say, oh, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea. Question is, is having two-thirds support over something that's a little controversial enough of a consensus that we're willing to move forward on it? Can you talk about the progression that you've kind of seen of this like Medicare for All movement, either side, as a social movement? Social movements generally refer to a kind of grassroots activism where people get together and say, this is something we really demand of our politicians rather than waiting for political ideas to come down from on high where the politicians come up with the plans and the public just has to say yay or nay. Is this a good idea or not? One might hope or think that much of the activation for Medicare for All could come from people who are currently Medicare beneficiaries, the people who live with Medicare, or their family members who know what it's like to be covered by Medicare. And so if there is going to be a social movement, it's going to be a social movement based on the fact Medicare is something people have lived with, they've experienced, they know what it's like. Now, it's not a perfect program. Its coverage doesn't uh, include some uh, procedures you might wish it would in terms of long-term care or various kinds of home health care. It still has a lot of cost-sharing required for people that can seem expensive or hard to anticipate if you go into the hospital or otherwise need major medical expenses. So it's not the ideal program, but it's a program people know, they're familiar with, and they can galvanize around because it's a known entity. Um, I suppose people end up using Medicare for All kind of as a cachet for all these different terms or types of universal health care that could happen just because it's so approachable. Um, what do you think the effect of that would be on public health in general? Would it be something that improves public health? allowing people to opt out of employer-based insurance and go into a program that was operated under government auspices would probably impact the health of the public most by freeing people to work in the place they want to work more. So, so many people are stuck in jobs they hate. 
because they can't afford to give up the insurance or lose the chance to start a new entrepreneurial venture because they can't afford to lose private insurance. And again, they could go on the exchanges. They could get the kind of coverages that the ACE makes available, but it's never going to be as good as what they get with a big company. So we trap people in large corporate settings and for that reason, put them in places that they really don't often want to be. I think the greatest impact on public health may therefore be that we free up people to work and follow career paths that take them where they want to go. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schlesinger. Um, could you provide our audience with a couple takeaways in regards to the Medicare for All policy and social movement? The trick is to not get confused between the two flavors of Medicare for All. Uh, it's easy for people who believe in the same values that everyone should have access to health care in a timely and affordable way to nonetheless feel at odds with each other because they believe in a different flavor of Medicare for All than the other camp does. And for all the reasons we talked about today and you guys suggested earlier, that would both be a mistake and would likely undermine the capacity to actually achieve real policy change. The second takeaway is to go back to the question about social movements and thinking about what it takes for public mobilization and engagement to let politicians know it's safe to think about Medicare for all as a public option, as they did back in 2010. That will require people electing politicians who think that is on the reasonable political agenda. We don't have a majority of politicians in Congress now, so it's going to require some concerted political activism on the part of those who think this is an important issue and want their public officials to feel that way as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dr. Schlesinger provided some really important insights into Medicare for All and the two different approaches to making it a reality. Yeah, the Bernie Sanders everyone gets enrolled option and the public option. Now we're going to talk to Dr. Bradley Richards for a physician's perspective. He's going to shed some light on how Medicare for All might impact patients and their interaction with their doctors. Uh, my pleasure for being here. I'm uh, Brad Richards. I'm on faculty here at the School of Medicine, assistant professor, and I'm also on faculty in the Yale um, Primary Care Residency Training Program. And I'm a general internist, so I provide primary care. I also uh, am the assistant clinic director for the uh, residency clinic here uh, at the St. Ray's campus. Before we start the segment, Brad, I was wondering if you could define what deductible copayment and coinsurance actually mean. I'd be happy to. So deductibles are, the, it's the amount of money you have to spend before your insurance kicks in. So you have a $500 deductible on, um, on hospitalizations. So you go to the hospital, you get admitted. Hospitals are very expensive, cost you a couple thousand dollars a day. You're going to pay that $500 right away, and then the insurance will take care of the rest, unless you have an additional co-insurance or co-payment on top of it, like on a per day. And so I'll explain that. So co-payment is typically a fixed dollar amount. So you come to see me in the primary care. Your co-payment 
for primary care, maybe it's $20. Maybe for a specialist, it's $25. So every time you come to see me for a copayment, you'd pay that. Coinsurance is a percentage of the cost. So for Medicare Part B, for example, it's 20%. You come to see me, um, you get you pay 20% of whatever Medicare pays. It's not the bill. It's not what I bill. It's what Medicare pays. You pay 20% of that. Medicare will arrange those rates well ahead of time. Can you describe what the conversation around Medicare for All and the medical community looks like? Are physicians and medical providers open to the idea? Yeah, it's a complicated question. So I'm an academic primary care provider. I do see patients, mostly Medicaid, in a resident training facility. Um, so I'm not your typical maybe primary care provider in the community, but I hope I have a decent pulse check on what's going on. And I think people are, are open to it. Um, you know, there's it's, it's probably less about the coverage and how people get paid and maybe more about the politics. And there's a lot of differences among physicians and clinicians about what people believe around this. But I, I don't think in terms of actually structurally how you're going to get reimbursed, people would be opposed to it. And a lot of that is because Medicare um, reimburses at a reasonable level. What If you talk to a lot of primary care providers, they're going to tell you, I get paid enough um, to see Medicare patients. That's different than Medicaid, which typically reimburses, at least in a fee-for-service world, so you get paid per transaction at a lower rate, so Medicaid doesn't pay as well. And so that's really where you get more into an issue of, of getting patients seen. But for Medicare, most a lot of private practitioners will take Medicare. Um, some won't. But I don't think in terms of the coverage and whether people are open to it from a practicing standpoint, it'd, it'd be much of a barrier. So there would be people that say medical providers more open to the idea of Medicare for all rather than if we called it Medicaid for all. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. And, and some of it is probably tied to the politics of and who's being covered. So Medicare right, covers everybody essentially that's uh, over 65 and also some people under 65 that are disabled. Medicaid really just covers the segment of the population that is you know, disabled and impoverished. And so I think there are some different feelings about whether that should exist or not, um, rather than um, whether it makes sense in terms of coverage at, from a provider standpoint. So when someone walks to my office, I often don't know what their coverage is. I, I personally look because I'm very interested in this, but a lot of people, probably a lot of the residents I work with or train with, they have no idea, even though it's sitting in the banner. And a lot of the reason is is just economic ones, where Medicaid might reimburse eighty dollars, Medicare might reimburse one hundred and eighty, and then commercial insurance might reimburse two hundred and fifty. Right. So there's a big difference, and so it's more about can you can you actually operate a a business, especially for private practice, with the money you're making from that specific insurance. I kind of want to shift from the policy perspective a bit and ask you what you think the effect of Medicare for all or these similar ideas for universal health care, um, what the effect of those might be on individuals like the patients that you see. So again, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of Medicaid patients. Right. And so interestingly, that might not change a lot for them, depending. It depends on what happens with Medicaid at the same time. So Medicare as an entity, you know, it covers a lot, but there's still a fair amount of out-of-pocket costs that people are have to pay. So if you have Part B, which is outpatient coverage, and provides you with going coming to see someone like me, you still end up with a copay, 20%. Um, and so it can be significant. Or if you're admitted to the hospital, your deductible is over $1,000 for admission. Um, for any outpatient procedure and other things, again, you're looking at a co-insurance, which 
isn't cheap. And so for people who are impoverished, that may be something they can't afford. Um, so if Medicaid continued, then it'd probably be pretty good coverage. Um, but if you eliminated that, which could potentially happen if you only had if you had Medicare for all, then that could be a problem for some patients. As a primary care physician, uh, did the Affordable Care Act impose greater burdens on the medical community? Did you see <clears throat> an effect from that? As someone who takes care of mostly Medicaid patients, I will say we saw a large number of patients that had insurance that didn't before. And that the Medicaid expansion, I think, was quite substantial and really important for that patient population, the adult patients who don't have dependent children. So Medicaid expansion really played a really big role. If you look at the you know, the ACA otherwise, there's actually not nearly as many people who get health insurance through the exchange as get through their employer. It's a very small number. And so I don't think it's a large number of patients that I see, at least from, a, again, a mostly underserved basis that are getting their insurance through the exchanges. But some do. I mean, I, I've talked to some. But it's played a much bigger role, I think, on the, the really underserved side, at least for states that have expanded Medicaid. As a physician who's intimately familiar with the current medical infrastructure in this country and the current supply of physicians in this country, if we were to have a Medicare for all universal health care system, would we have the infrastructure in place as we do today to support um, the current population? Or do you anticipate reductions in quality potentially? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about are there enough providers? And um, I don't know if I have the perfect answer to that. I think it's depending on how you slice it. Do we need more MDs? Do we need more nurse practitioners? Do we need more PAs doing primary care? I think the answer is probably yes. But how better can we build teams of care of care providers to take care of this patient population? And so I think it's really local, and you have to figure out what the needs of your population are that you're serving, and some of that's just based on the demographics. Um, but I'm not convinced that we don't have enough quote-unquote, providers, rather that we don't have enough appropriate teams of interprofessionals working together to take care of the population that that currently exists. And especially if you start harnessing technology more to do a better job, we, I don't think we do a very, at least here in underserved care, there's a lot of opportunity. We don't do a great job of it. It's really difficult. It's expensive. I don't, we don't have the funding um, to do it well. And I, I mean, there's pockets of places that are doing it better, I think, across the country. So given your patient population, which it sounds like is um, more Medicaid-dependent, low-income, um, how do you think a policy like Medicare for, for All would impact public health and community health in general? Yeah, it's a great question and somewhat difficult to answer, and I'll say a few things about that. Um, one, for my patient population, we do have a fair amount of dual eligible patients, which are people who are both have Medicare and Medicaid. And so it really depends on how you structure this. And if you said, okay, no one's on, Med everybody gets Medicare, nobody gets Medicaid. Well, what is that kind of what we were talking about before? Well, all of a sudden they have a lot of copays that they didn't have. People might not seek care. Um, you might be familiar with the RAND healthcare experiment in the 1970s where they randomized people to different like coverage and copays, like out-of-pocket costs, the more what we saw in that study was the more you had to pay out-of-pocket, regardless of your income, the less care you sought, even like preventive care. And so there's a, that's why a lot of the ACA um, 
mandates free preventive care coverage because you don't want people not going to that because you have a copay. And so I would worry that if it was just Medicare, Medicaid went away, which maybe could happen, um, or you got like subsidies and you still had some co-payments for, for care, that we'd see less people seeking care. Now, there already are barriers to care for a lot of my patients, but there might be more if that was the case. For the general population that has mostly commercial, and now all of a sudden you go from a, a employer-sponsored plan to a, maybe we said it was Medicare Part C. Everybody can pick their own private Medicare Part C plan. I don't know if it changes that much. It probably changes your reimbursement if you're still in a fee-for-service world. And if I was a private, if I put on my fake private practitioner hat, I'd be a little bit worried because commercial insurance pays more than Medicare. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm not making as much in my fee-for-service world. I'm a little bit worried about that. If you put a, I put him on my Medicaid world and Medicaid hat, well, for me, it probably wouldn't impact things as much unless Medicaid got drastically cut. But because of how reimbursement works, it Medicare dri- drives a lot. They drive, they're really the leaders in cost changes and practice changes, and they could ha- would have a huge impact on, on the landscape in the long run. So it sounds like when they're crafting this policy, there would have to be some sort of emphasis on preventative care, essentially covering those services um, on a large scale for the American population. Yeah, and I think you could easily just say, change parts of Medicare where you can just change the law and say, preventive services are free. There's no out-of-pocket costs. Or you add, you do a sliding scale for co-payments or something like that too. So there's a bunch of things you could do to make this work for everybody. Um, It's just figuring out how to structure it. So thank you, Dr. Richards, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, We were just wondering, do you have any like main takeaways for our audience today? Yeah, I think the big one is Medicare for all can mean a lot of different things. And understanding what the proposal is really tells you everything you need to know. Because it can look like the UK system. It could look like the Netherlands. It could look like what we have but expanded. Um, it could, The details could change so that it covers more social services. It could really be the new public health you know, game changer for us. But who knows? Because it could mean so many things. And uh, I think you just have to really understand what people are saying. I think there is a lot of potential because Medicare actually carries a really good name. Um, and people actually might get behind that because of it. Who knew healthcare was so complicated? <laughs> well, after this podcast, our public health decoded audience definitely knows. Yeah, we had some great insights on Medicare for All from two perspectives, the policy side and the physician side. If you enjoyed this podcast, then make sure you tune in for Public Health Decoded podcasts in the future. Our next episode will be focusing on the opioid epidemic. Thanks, guys, for listening. Subscribe to our channel to join us while we decode the latest public health issues. 